following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mindspace. As we finalize our intentional community series, we will interview Amanda Moore from Cononia Farms Community in Georgia. Community was founded in 1942 by Clarence and Florence Jordan and Martin and Mabel Anglin. This Christian community emphasizes the sharing of resources and has been in the forefront of black and white relations, providing equal wages for workers from any race, and sharing meals without segregating racial groups as early as the 1940s. Their commitment to racial equality, pacifism, and economic sharing brought an organized boycott and ongoing persecution from white supremacist groups in the 1950s. Through nonviolence, they resisted the attacks and were able to thrive and place their focus on the poor quality of local housing. They began a project to build decent, affordable homes for their neighbors, a ministry that has evolved into Habitat for Humanity International. Cononia has been instrumental in the founding of other organizations, such as Jubilee Partners, a community that welcomes refugees from war-torn countries, and many others that work for social justice. Here's our interview with Amanda Moore from Cononia Farm. We're doing a series on intentional communities, and we've had the show for five months, and we kind of avoided the subject because we were trying to figure out how to tackle it and how to be as honest and thorough as possible interviewing individuals and getting a, a good picture of the different approaches to intentional communities. Can you just tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, how did you get involved with uh, Quirinia and what is your role there? Sure. So I grew up in East Tennessee, um, the very northeast tip of the state. It's a really beautiful mountain area. And I was born into a really dysfunctional family. Um, we were a very in fact, I grew up mostly on the streets and living with other people. And there was a lot of struggles mentally within our family as well. Growing up, my only source of stability really was the church and the school I was a part of. I was really blessed by folks who, even though they had some flawed theology, they really knew how to love and take care of people. And that really formed and influenced me a lot as a young child. And as I grew older, school became more of an influence with my teachers. Uh, several of them actually took me in their homes. And one of them, my high school teacher, I still consider her home to be my home and her family to be my family as well. Then I was privileged. I got a scholarship to a school nearby and was introduced to living as the church, not just participating in activities that are called the church and lived with some families from that church and was really shaped in my understanding of sharing possessions and time and talent. I was really shaped by that church in particular. And so it was the school and the church that I was a part of that introduced me to Quinnonia. It was a really beautiful experience, actually. I watched the documentary that tells the story of the community here. I watched that in one of my classes the very week that some friends from my church were traveling down here for uh, one of the retreats Koinonia offers. So within a week, you know, I first heard the word Koinonia and I was down here visiting that next weekend. And, and that was just an amazing time of saying, I'm not really sure what I want to do with my life after I graduate. 
And this is a space and time that would afford me some discernment about identity and life goals because I'm not seeking, you know, to climb up a career ladder or to buy a house or the traditional standard of American living. And so Koinonia provided that space for me to discern what I wanted to do next and who I wanted to become within the church and within the world. So that was about eight years ago. In fact, I think this very day, eight years ago, I was arriving at Koinonia as an intern, uh, seeking to discern my role in the church and in the world. And that was a three-month internship. My plan was to spend three months here at Koinonia in Georgia, then maybe spend about six to nine months at Reba Place Fellowship in Illinois, another community, and maybe a few more months of that year in another intentional community, and then sort of see what would happen after that. Well, I did the internship at Koinonia, and I stayed here, and within a year, I was running the intern program. It became a part of who I was becoming. So I was really drawn into the life here, and I've been a member of the community uh, for seven years now. And right now, I'm actually the acting director within our business structure um, our director, who's been here 14 years, uh, Brand Dubay, she was treated this summer for breast cancer. And so we've given her some time to recover and heal and to do a little bit of writing. Um, she's a playwright, and she's also working on a, a devotional book for us. Um, and so I've been taking care of our business side of things and making sure the community is solid and that our communication patterns are open and honest and basically trying to make sure things don't fall through the cracks. And that's a pretty big job. That's why I am here, yeah. Uh, we just interviewed the 12 Tribes community in both Pulaski and Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they shared their spiritual perspective and the way that they do church. Um, so uh, what I was sharing with them is that we have to define a lot of terms because to people from the outside, when um, certain religious lingo is used, they have no clue what you might be talking about. So when you mention that you were involved with several churches, when you say that you found a connection with the church and a way of lifestyle that embodies that, what affiliations, what organizations did all this spring about? What is the approach? Is it a more in your perspective, committed approach to New Testament teachings as other groups, stuff like that, because that's what we were struggling to kind of sort through as, as we were talking to spiritual communities that are based on a particular perspective. Yeah, and, and to be honest, this is one of the things that really drew me into Koinonia, because I consider myself to be ecumenical, and by that I mean I believe God speaks to different people uh, through different traditions. Um, within the Christian church that follows the New Testament teachings and within the traditions around the world that point us in, into different religions. So the, the church community I was a part of in Tennessee, um, it's an ecumenical community founded on uh, Christian church, Church of Christ. It's one of the specific denominations within the New Testament church here. And I say ecumenical because the denomination that they are affiliated with um, that didn't seem to govern the people as much as the specific needs that came up within the group and the specific talents and the specific ideologies. So within the Christian church, you have the Protestants and the Catholics, 
um, who sort of make up that, um, at least the American community. And this church I was a part of was considered Protestant, but it followed Catholic practices and even Orthodox practices. Um, And so that really influenced me to understand that just because I think about God a certain way or I define God a certain way doesn't make that reality. I need to be open to hearing how my neighbor experiences God, how my neighbor views God, how my neighbor gets in touch with God even, or this divine being, if we're even uncomfortable calling that God. And so this church really opened my eyes to different ways that we can be in relationship with God and with our neighbor. And then that work was continued as I moved here to Koinonia. Uh, We are specifically a New Testament uh, Christian community. We seek to follow the example of the the church in the first century after Christ's death, Um, specifically the scriptures from the Acts of the Apostles saying that the church lived together and shared all things in common according to need. We really were founded on that verse, to be honest, to this community here. Um, We really seek to learn together what it is that God is calling us to do, how God is calling us to act and behave, and how that affects and impacts each other. So there's a a long-winded answer to your question. So when you say sharing things, is is the share purse uh, one of those aspects, like other communities, Christian communities would speak of like uh, or do people have independent finances and they make contributions or how does it work so koinonia does have a common purse we call it a modified common purse we're an income sharing community and it's it's an easy enough venture for us to do because most of our members work within our own businesses and so it's um we manage a mail order business, we manage a nonprofit, we manage the con farming industry and uh, cracking and processing facility. We manage a, a livestock uh, co-op, if you want to call it that. And so most all of our members work in one of those ventures that we have. And so all of the money that we receive from all of these business ventures go into our common treasury. And then from that common treasury, we're allotted a certain allowance or living stipend is how it could be called to cover certain things that our community doesn't have. Like, for example, we um, we share common meals, but not every single meal is held in common. So then we're given a certain allowance to uh, provide those meals for ourselves or any needs that we may have that aren't met by the community here. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of your community? um, I know you mentioned that it's based on biblical principles, but where where does it come from, who founded it, and how did it get to where it is right now? So Koinonia started in 1942 down here in South Georgia. There were two couples that started the community, Clarence and Florence Jordan and Martin and Mabel England. And both of them were seeking to live not just as a a missionary, for example, but really try to live as an example of how God's kingdom could look here and now. So as a New Testament church, um, really dealing and grappling with the issues that were facing the world in 1942. Excuse me. So the community started with four members, 
1942, and from the beginning, there were several uh, values that were held in common, one being the shared purse, the common purse. Every uh, All the monies were pooled together from the beginning. The second is that hospitality would be central to the life here. So our most long-standing ministry is welcoming anybody and everybody. doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your faith, your tradition, your nationality, any boundary that would separate you know, neighbor from neighbor, we try to really step over those at Koinonia to create this as a space where people feel invited and feel treasured and cherished. So we've had, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people come and find respite here at Koinonia, whether that be for a couple hours or a couple weeks, even a couple of years. And then another value, of course, that's been longstanding in the community since the beginning is the the value of brother and sisterhood. And you could refer to that as the equality of all people. And it's similar to hospitality in the sense of you see your neighbor not as your neighbor is defined by the world, but as your neighbor is defined by God, as created by God. And that really is what a neighbor should be seen as. And so any of those differences that may come about, um, Koinonia really has sought to live as an alternative to that. Um, Several examples of how Koinonia has done that, uh, in the 40s and 50s, of course, the community lived as an example of pacifism, um, really speaking against war and against violence and against the militarization that was happening during that time. Of course, uh, Quinnenia has had black and white folks living and working together since 1942, and in South Georgia, that wasn't a very popular thing. So one of the things Quinnenia is most well-known for is our involvement in the civil rights movement as a forerunner to that, really being the backwater of that that movement. Um, and Quinnenia has... We've documented really well the story of our community living through that time. Um, for example... The in, in the 1950s, late 50s, that was a really difficult time and a very violent time for our community. Um, we had families living here, both black and white, and uh, there were some really violent attempts to get this community either to stop doing what we were doing of living with this interracial view or to move somewhere else. So there were nightly drive-by shootings, and our houses are right here on the highway. So folks would drive by and shoot into the houses at night. Um, There were folks who were cutting our fences to let loose our hogs, um, and so the hogs would be out on the highways at night. Or there were folks who dynamited our our stand out on the highway selling our hickory-smoked hams and other produce that's available um, the KKK held uh, a few rallies and, and drove out here to Koinonia with a motorcade uh, and threatened the life of the, the folks here, you know, face-to-face. Uh, there were some really awful encounters between members of the KKK and the members here of Koinonia. Um, every church here in America has kicked out the members for fear that their church would be burned down. A store in the downtown area was dynamited because it dared to sell some seeds to Koinonia. Uh, folks wouldn't cash our checks. They wouldn't offer us um, any goods in exchange for money. They stopped doing business with us. 
that violence uh, wasn't successful trying to get the community community to leave. So then the KKK mandated an economic boycott. It wouldn't allow any merchants to buy or sell. And, of course, the one that dared do business with us was blown up. And so that only strengthened the hold that the boycott had. Um, so through that time, uh, Quininia turned its ventures to something else. We turned to a, me- a federal mail order business uh, because the federal mail is federal property, and so it would be protected by more than just the local law. And so we began shipping uh, pecans and hickory smoked hams around the country to folks who were wanting to support us in our way of life. And so that business was started in 1957 with the slogan, help us ship the nuts out of Georgia. And I think that fit very perfectly with the, the spirit that the community had of the local folks. And so the community has existed uh, on the money from that mail order business since 1957. And then quickly after that, uh, Quinnia turned some of our own efforts to building houses and creating uh, community partnerships throughout the local uh, people here. So one thing that was happening after some changes to the sharecropping system, which I would say was modern-day slavery for the South at that time, once the sharecropping system ended of tenant farmers living and farming land that wasn't their own, of course, um, once that ended, folks who didn't have opportunities or possibilities for jobs in this area ended up moving and most of them ended up moving up north to find, um, you know, better situations and to try to find better jobs. Now, often they weren't finding that scenario. What they were finding is the same exact stuff they were dealing with in the South, folks who didn't want them there, who wouldn't offer them a job, who wouldn't make any space in their own world uh, for folks who are different. And so one way Quinnenia seeks uh, would seek to combat that was to make land available to folks who knew, for example, how to farm, to make land available for those folks, not on their ability to buy the land or to purchase the equipment or to purchase the livestock to put on the land, but based on their usership of it. So there was this idea of land being held in a trust that wouldn't be owned by people but would be used by people and then they would be offered resources to start up their business, whatever it may be, to put their seeds in the ground, to purchase the steer that they're going to graze on the land, or to start up a, a business venture of you know, uh, making clothes or different crafts with a micro-lending aspect to that. And then, of course, the third part of that is you would need a place to live on that land. And so the idea is that you would create a sort of micro-economy where you could exist outside of the dollar market economy. So if someone grew beans in their backyard or on this plot of land and the lady next door had kids to feed and could offer some mending of clothes or even making and producing clothes, well, you could exchange those goods without ever involving the dollar in that exchange. And so if you couldn't go to the bank and get a loan, well, let's, find a way around that system. And so that third aspect, the building of the houses, that grew into a larger ministry. Of course, it's worldwide now and is known as Habitat for Humanity International. 
and then a, a spinoff of that also, the Fuller Center for Housing. They're building houses for folks all around the world and renovating houses for folks to live in. Um, and, and so that came directly from our vision of seeking to build community and partnership and really finding an alternative to the dollar market economy and the competition that exists and really chokes people out of the system. So there's some pretty amazing things that have come out of the difficulty that Quinity has experienced. Um, a, a decade or two later, we were ministering to refugees who were fleeing from Latin America and South American massacres, um, and we were trying to help find a space for them within the, the world of America and making sure they could fit into um, this new life here and kind of helping teach and, and direct them through that. So Quinnity has done a lot of things since 1942. It's participated in so many ministries. It's changed so many lives. And the way that we've sought to do that has always simply been to live in partnership with our neighbor, to see how we can best live out the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, of loving your neighbor as God has loved us and sharing um, what we have according to need, not according to greed, um, and really seeking to live that as a way of life, not just as individuals, but as a shared, a shared group who seek to be family. There's a lot of uh, commutes out there that um, are presenting a, an alternative way of living. And um, what would you say to people who want to tune out from the materialistic and superficial um, world that we live in, but are not ready to move into an intentional community or to start their own, what can they do to become independent from things that we might all agree on are bad for society, bad for individuals, things that are keeping people disconnected and not helping them have like a fully integrated self? What are small steps that people can take other than selling everything and joining one of these communities? Yeah, well, the first thing that I would say is even selling everything and joining one of these communities, you're not going to escape from the materialism of the world or the struggles of the secular community. They exist even in a place like this. Um, even if you don't have the latest technology, if you don't have computers and cable and you know, all this stuff, you still have to deal with your own self. And there's a lot about your own self um, that may be difficult to handle, and it follows you wherever you are, whoever you're living with and sharing life with. But just a couple examples I would give um, to folks who really are seeking to live um, maybe a less materialistic or superficial life. I point back to the community, church community I was a part of in Tennessee. Um, one thing that was really life-giving about that group of people is that they found a way to use tools to share tools to share well let me just put it this way they ha they have an email list which means a they have a computer b they have access to the internet so those are some of the materialistic things that some people seek to avoid however this church community uses that tool to share with others hey i have this need can you meet it or hey i have this excess or surplus who needs this and i've seen this you know to varying degrees I've, I've seen this be pretty extreme so it could be as simple as we don't want to buy a lawnmower we would really like to share a lawnmower with somebody who has one that would be willing to share with us 
And that's a, a pretty simple one. You can share lawn equipment and, and things like that with your neighbors. And that way you don't all have to have one. You don't all have to maintain it and store it. And uh, it's kind of ridiculous to think that every American home has a lawnmower. That's so much waste. So you can seek to share things like that. But then to a larger degree, I've seen examples of, you know, we have this extra car that we're not really using that much. Does anyone out there have need of a car? Or, you know, someone saying, well, I just lost my job and I'm really struggling to figure out what I'm going to do next. Can anybody offer me a place to live for the next six months while I get back on my feet? And so this one tool, this email, is used to share needs with that community in that one specific location But that list, that email list, there are folks from that list who live in Papua New Guinea, who live in China, who live in Georgia, for example. I get those emails. So every day this email list is coming through, you know, all of these emails of I have this need or I have this excess or this surplus. And really the heart of that is I want to be in relationship with people in some way, um, one way or another. So tell me about this uh, nine members. Um, a lot of communities have a cap on the amount of people that can join. What has happened or what? why is it that the number is small? And is it that you have families that are supportive and like outside members and then you have the core that live in the farm? Or do you have a network of people that are involved and are not considered like full members? How does that work? So Quinania has nine members right now and we've got about... Four, uh, well, six interns. We're accepting a new family this weekend with kids. Um, and we've got folks who come and spend time with us throughout the year, guests um, who are here for up to two weeks. Uh, during the fall, we have folks who come and spend a couple months with us to help us with our pecan harvest. Um, but, yeah, nine people really are, are managing not just our, our businesses um, but also our community, our church here. And um, the the community went through a process of changing um, in about 20 years ago and then a process of changing again about 10 years ago. And so that's kind of um, part of the reason why our membership has, has changed a little bit over the last 20 years. But, yeah, I mean, we want new members. We would love people to come and join us. We've had uh, folks who come and spend a year of discernment with us, and many folks have uh, spent some time in discernment with us and then kind of go to other places to see if what they're looking for is here, what they're looking for is somewhere else. Um, discernment uh, takes on many different forms for different people. But, yeah, we would love to have new members who are interested not just in um, one aspect of of what we're doing here, um, but to come and to be a a part of the whole community, the work, the ministry, the the fellowship, and the study, and what we seek to make as our way of life. So what is that transition that you guys went through? If you can uh, elaborate on that, please. Sure. It's really difficult to understand, especially if you're not someone who lives in community, but Sort of like what you're talking about with the farm going um, from community to co-op, I would the easiest way to explain it is that Quinnia really experimented with something like that. Um, they just didn't work for many reasons. Um, 
And so kind of changed back to more what we had been doing uh, years prior to that. And so the, the membership uh, started growing in 2000, really in 2008, the membership started growing again. So we have nine members who have joined since 2008. I asked this um, because of personal experience, but um, what about opportunities for families? I know you mentioned there's a family just coming in as interns, but um, a lot of communities choose to do homeschooling or to do like a rural school or to send their kids to the schools around the the rural area, and it has mixed results. Um, is there something that is in place or that has been available for members in regards to um, rearing, rearing children and providing education for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So since 42, Quinnia basically has said to the parents, we want to make things available to you, but we know that it's your choice. Um, because you're a part of the intentional community movement, you know that there's also a certain fear involved. Um, a community can become very much like a cult at times, and and that can be very dangerous. And folks who come into our community are really afraid of that at times, and their parents especially are really afraid for their kids. Um, it's just something that we deal with because of what happens at times with communities like ours. And so we do want to make sure that that we're not um, deciding for parents the ways in which they want to raise their kids. Now, we do have shared values. We do want to make sure that our kids are raised sharing the same values that we have as far as um, the shared brotherhood and sisterhood of all people, living as an example, an alternative to materialism and militarism and racism. And so the way that looks for us, specifically with, with uh, kid care, as we call it, and with schooling, is we let parents choose. We do have a, a co-op here, and um, it's been, you know, a whole number of kids. We had, I think, a couple of kids at one point. It got up to 24 kids. Um, it's gotten down to a couple of kids again. And, and so even parents from the surrounding community will choose to have their kids enrolled in one of our co-op programs here. Um, and some parents choose to send their kids to public schools. Quinnity has always been a, a supporter of public schools. In fact, right after Brown versus Board of Education, the local school system wouldn't allow our white students into the white public schools. And so Quinnity has sued in order for their children to be able to attend a public school. So the community here has always thought to make sure that our local education system is the best possible version of what it could be. Um, so we feel pretty involved in, in that as well. But, yeah, we have parents who choose to do homeschooling specifically within their own nuclear family. We have parents who choose to have their kids a part of a homeschool co-op. And we have parents who choose to send their kids to public schools full-time. So do you guys hold to traditional female and male roles within your church structure and your businesses and nonprofits, or is it uh, similar to other progressive groups where that is something that is also uh, open to everyone and it's not bound by a, the particular religious perspective on it. Females are not held back by any, you know, measure at all, if that's kind of what you're asking about. In fact, right now our, our two main um, leaders are female. <laughs> In fact, I'm one of them. Um, 
so, yeah, we believe that God has gifted people in certain ways, and specifically because of their gender, we shouldn't limit the ways in which we think God has gifted people and the talents that folks can use. Um, we want to let them use and the best way possible. So there's, we're completely open in that way. Here at the farm, uh, there's two rituals that are, are very integral to the community, and that's um, bringing new life into the world and uh, the passing on of people and the celebrations that they have during their funerals. Uh, do you guys have your own rituals and your own traditions that you have been um, exploring with your members and your supporters, or is it... Um, mostly the social justice aspect and the the New Testament teachings about uh, sharing that that make your your own traditions? Or, or is there something particular about how you guys celebrate that or, or Sunday worship or birthdays or something? Is there something that is particular uh, from the way that you guys do, uh, you know, life cycle ceremonies and things like that? That's a, a really good question, and I think I could probably talk on it until the cows come home, as we would say. I mean, I think each community is going to have their own traditions and their own celebrations, um, and that's one of the things we found so life-giving is that we need to constantly be celebrating. There's always something to celebrate, whether it's welcoming a new baby calf into the world or whether it's... Um, Actually, even having one of our cows taken to the butcher, we see that as a very sacred time as well. Um, or whether it's harvesting peas from the garden or whether it's harvesting the pecans from the trees, um, it really is important to find aspects of celebration in everything we do. I think that helps to knit us together as a family and as a, a, a body of, of people. There's one ritual that we have Uh, specifically tied to our membership and community, and that is each spring we have what we call a covenant worship ceremony. And you could think of it, I guess, as a wedding ceremony in, in the strict sense of you're covenanting yourself to a, a group of people and to this place. So our members hold, I believe, it's seven covenants um, that we hold in common, and some of them are, are value-based. Um, and some of them are scripture-based. But each each uh, spring we come together and have our members, our interns, our uh, supporting folks from around the country come in and, and witness this ceremony too. And it's when we renew our, our promises to each other and when we welcome new members, folks who are becoming covenanted members. Um, and that's a really special time in our life. It's a sacred time in that sense of, you know, we are holding on to um, what we feel to be the most important part of our life is that we're committed to doing this together. And as long as we hold that commitment, we really can do anything together as long as we're holding on to each other. And, of course, we're always having picnics out in the pecan fields and in the fall. Oh, my gosh, in the fall we have so many celebrations and rituals um, surrounding our harvest because, We have 92 acres of pecan trees, and we do every single aspect of growing the pecans, harvesting the pecans, sorting the pecans. It goes through three pecan processing facilities, and then they're hand-sorted, and then we take them into the bakery where we 
create them into wonderful goodies, you know, pecan chocolates and um, pecan pies and date nut bread, and the pecans go into a whole host of things. And then, of course, we run our own mail order business, and so we're selling these pecans and the value-added goods, and then we're shipping them out all around the world. So every fall, you know, we're kind of going crazy with how much work there is to do, but there are so many fun celebrations around that time as well. And so we try to just um, to sort of summarize one of the things we try to ritualize about that is before we get started with a main um, amount of work that happens, we try to always have a, a meal to be calmed. Uh, you know, we're all sort of jittery about we know the season is about to get really busy, and so we're kind of trying to remember how fun it is at the same time we're scared of how much work is coming and so we just kind of sit around together and blow off steam and reminisce about old times and and harvest the last year or the year before or remember that time when the tractor broke down right in the middle of getting the pecans in the field and we had to do this and that to get around using the tractor and remember that time the forklift stopped working and we had to lift the crates by hand and so really holding those memories in common, I feel like, is an important ritual and then building on them every year. Um, we also have a, a lot of rituals um, as a church. You know, I mentioned we are a church community. So uh, a couple of things that we do together that we feel are important. Uh, we have chapel, what we call chapel every morning, where we come together and sit in silence for about 10 minutes and hear scripture being read and sing some hymns together and someone offers a reflection on the scripture that we've read or something that's bubbling up within their spirit these days. And then, of course, during our lunch uh, noon meal, we will again read scripture and share a reflection from that. And every day we have a time of sharing joys and concerns any prayer requests we may have or any joys that we want to share with each other. Um, And during the dinners right now, we're reading through the Psalms. That's a a very monastic practice um, that we've picked up from our brothers and sisters in the monastic orders, reading through the Psalms. We don't do it every week, as some of them do. Sometimes it takes us close to a year to get through the Psalms. But I think we're on our fourth time through reading the Psalms each evening. And then on Sunday evenings, we have what we call a gathered worship service, where we begin by sharing the Lord's Supper together, a communion meal, and uh, then we share in a potluck meal where folks bring whatever it is they've made or heat up whatever leftovers are in the back. And then after sharing that meal together, uh, we share in a time of giving thanks for various things throughout our week, Um, gratitude either to each other or... Uh, for specific situations that have happened, even you know, just sharing gratitude for the beauty of nature, the sunrise and the sunset, or a beautiful cow that's frolicking out in the pasture. Um, and then we, of course, are singing songs throughout that, and we share a sign of peace with each other, and we really take that seriously. We try to live in a good, whole relationship with each other, um, and Sunday evenings are a celebration of that, really a ritual of of at most, you know, trying to be in peace with each other. <laughs> if we can't be at peace with the entire world, it has to start somewhere. Um, 
trying to live that out. So, yeah, I mean, there are so many examples I could give you of celebrations and rituals, and we have so much fun together. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about your membership process? How long does it take for someone to go through it, and what are the steps, and is there people that support you through it, a mentor or a sponsor like other communities? Yeah, sure. So um, we have specific words for each stage in our membership, but the easiest way to think of it is that we have members who are in discernment, meaning they have not taken that covenant that I referred to earlier. Um, They haven't made those final vows. Um, So we have members in discernment. We have members who have made that lifetime or long-haul commitment, as we refer to it. Um, Those who are covenanted members, who are full common purse members, and then we have members who are non-common purse. And those are uh, local folks who live in the city of America who feel very passionate about um, the values that Quinnia holds and the things that we're involved in, but they don't have the common purse uh, structure. So most of them will not um, live in Quinnia housing, for example, or drive Quinnia cars. So there's that uh, the differing stages of the membership or aspects of the membership. And typically it takes uh, three to four years to really become a covenanted member. There's a couple of discernment processes you would go through before you even become a discerning member here. Uh, you will have had to live in our community for six or seven months, um, sharing in the daily life, uh, some meetings together, uh, with the community and one-on-one spiritual direction meetings, uh, sharing in our common meals and the work of our Ministry of Hospitality, sharing in some of our service uh, that we offer to the, the community here at Quinnia and the wider community. So all in all, it's about three to four year process total. And we do try to provide a lot of support to folks who are in that process. I mentioned, you know, usually... You'll have one-on-one spiritual direction uh, with one of our folks here at Koinonia. And we also encourage you to have somebody away from the community who's walking with you and asking good questions of you. And you can ask good questions of them also. So somebody who knows your walk in life and is walking alongside you as you're making your decisions about um, whether to live your life here at Koinonia. So, for example, I've got a spiritual mentor a spiritual director, actually, who's a monk at the Monastery of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we encourage folks to have those kinds of relationships, too, even outside the community. you guys do anything with economic justice? And I know you mentioned some of these organic or natural harvesting and, and uh, planting methods, but um, is there anything uh, eco-village style or permaculture that you guys are spearheading right now or that you're involved with with anything related to climate change or ecology or environmentalism? Our main ministry focus, if you will, within our our community is to feed the hungry physically and spiritually. Uh, We do that in a whole variety of ways. Uh, Spiritually, I mentioned we offer classes, workshops, retreats. We ask people important questions that help them dive to their own spiritual needs and, and um, I believe it was Mother Teresa who said this is that America is one of the poorest countries in the world. And then she went on to describe what she meant by that, is that 
we're lonely. We're disconnected from each other. We don't have relationship with each other like some other folks she's seen. And we're really hungering and thirsting for that connection. And so we really have thought to be a place where we can nourish folks um, physically and, and spiritually in that way. And then teach folks to become a nourisher wherever they're planted in the world. So some of the things that we're doing to feed people physically, uh, there's the given of just inviting people to share meals with us. And we never really know if we're going to have guests um, show up to share in our lunch or our dinner. We always prepare extra food just in case. And sometimes we have folks uh, come and, and share meals with us that are from a different country or from down the street. You know, we never know who's going to show up at our table, and that's a really uh, sometimes can be really uh, nerve-wracking, but it's often just a really beautiful experience to be sitting at table with a, a wide diversity of people. You could have a millionaire sitting there next to somebody who's homeless, and neither one of them would really know the other person's story, but they would still be sharing the same meal, eating off the same plates, um, using the same utensils and, of course, the very same food would be nourishing their bodies and, and that is a great equalizer we see. Uh, meals is very sacred. So uh, what we're doing with our pecans is a really huge thing and, and really important, too, for the way that um, we're seeking to impact the system of agriculture in the South. So Quinnity has always kind of been on the cutting edge when it comes to agricultural endeavors. Uh, Clarence, one of our founding members, had his his undergrad degree in agriculture and his graduate degree in New Testament Greek theology. And he always thought that God had made a mistake. He felt like he was supposed to be a farmer. And so why was God asking him to become you know, a New Testament Greek scholar? He, he always felt like God had made a mistake. But he put the two together when he was here at Koinonia. Um, he had some innovative ideas that um, really impacted the way some farming was done here locally in his lifetime. Something that's really popular right now are chicken tractors, where you have uh, chickens or, or turkeys even um, in a little mobile home that you can move throughout the pasture. Joel Salatin, of course, is somebody who's made the, the chicken tractor really uh, popular and famous. But... Quinnity has had chicken tractors since the 50s, uh, even back into the 40s. You know, we've seen some aerial photos of tractors out in the field, um, these little houses, mobile houses for the chickens. It's just pretty amazing to think how innovative it was to have that thought back then. Um, and, of course, now we're using chicken tractors again. We have an old van that um, we, we gutted and, of course, took the engine out of and turned it into a chicken house. So we literally have a van that is a chicken house where the, the chickens live during the night, of course. And we move it throughout the pasture. And we get the tractor and drag it around through the field. So a little van, it looks really funny, just sitting out in the middle of the field. And, of course, we've got cattle. We have, I think right now we've got about 50 head of cattle. Um, and one of, the, one of the easiest and quickest ways to heal the soil is to put cattle on it. And one of the easiest and quickest ways to kill the soil is to put cattle on it. It's all in the way you farm. A lot of science has gone into this and shown that if you use, as we are, if you use intensive grazing uh, methods, 
that you really could have a positive impact on the life and the quality of the soil. And so we've taken one of our 80-some acre pastures that had been in row crops, we've taken that field and turned it into a pasture where we have the cattle roaming um, and the quality of that soil is really increasing every year. Um, and of course, we, we plant some some grasses for the cattle um, to have throughout the seasons and, and we're doing what we can to be in partnership with the cattle to make sure that quality of soil increases even more. And the same thing with our pecan orchards. We're using a system of farming that's called biological uh, methods of farming. We're learning all this from a little old grandma out in East Texas who has changed the way uh, folks see farming in Texas and has a lot of big ag folks in Texas really afraid of her. She's a pretty amazing woman, um, and she's really shown us that you can do a different system of farming than the conventional farming um, conventional farming, of course, you would be spraying herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, fungicides, all these words with side, and side means to kill. So you're killing the things that are imbalancing your system. But what you're doing is creating a further imbalance, either in your own system or in the systems that are impacted by yours. So if you're spraying insecticides and herbicides in a neighborhood, you're a you're impacting the kids in that neighborhood. You're impacting the water source. You're impacting the insects that are going to live there. And so what we've thought to do is instead of impacting it in a negative way, we want to impact it in a positive way. So instead of spraying all those things that I just mentioned that kill, we are infusing new life into the pecan orchards to balance the life that's already there. And a perfect example of how to think about this so in your conventional farming system and even in your organic farming system, if you have a problem with a pecan weevil, as we do, you would spray an insecticide or a pesticide to take care of that. However, you would also be killing other beneficial insects and you would be having a negative impact on the system that you would have to remedy with something else. And so what we do instead is we release a parasitic wasp into the orchard that's so minute it won't affect a human or another animal, but it will lay an egg on that pecan weevil. And then, of course, once it's hatched, that pecan weevil becomes food. And then that parasitic wasp becomes food. And then what's eaten that parasitic wasp becomes food to the higher on the food chain, and so you can see how the entire system is given life by the life that we've introduced. So the system of farming that we're doing really has the potential of shaping the way that farming is done in the entire South. Um, the one thing that we're still struggling with and we're hoping to find some solutions to is a problem with scab, which is a, a fungus caused by all the moisture that we've been seeing. Our weather patterns have been so off these last couple of years, and most all the farmers around us are really struggling um, to keep their crop, and, and what they're doing is spraying all kinds of chemicals, and some of them still, you know, spraying 15 times a year these really strong, heavy chemicals, and they're still losing their crop. And so what we're trying to do is find an alternative to say, hey, hey, wait, 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 you don't have to pour all those chemicals down the throat of the earth. Why don't you think about it a little differently? Why don't you come at your problem from a different angle? 
here, we've done it this way. Let's see if this works for you. So what we're doing with Epicons really does have um, a wide-reaching effect. Um, we're, like I said, we're learning from folks in Texas, but we're the only folks this side of the Mississippi who are doing this to the scale we are. So we want to show you can do large-scale farming with creation care in mind, you know, taking care of the earth, taking care of the environment. And one of the things that we've seen as an impact from this uh, way of farming, uh, Betsy Ross is our consultant in Texas who's used this system not just with pecan orchards. She also does um, grass-fed beef and pecan orchards, but she's created several uh, city parks. Uh, she also did the Bush Gardens, the library there. And some research has been done on her, the city parks that she's worked in, uh, because folks have noticed that their their mood is very different once they walk into these parks. There's something physically affecting them by you know in this location, and so uh, some folks have done some research about the air quality there. You know, not just that you have the absence of um, a, a lot of the environmental toxins that you see in big cities, but you know, the, the air itself is being improved by um, the life that you're infusing into that ecosystem. And it's even having an impact on the ozone layer, which is pretty amazing. I, I still can't even put my mind around how you can create a city park that will have a positive impact on the ozone layer. And so what we're doing is with our 92 acres of pecan orchards and our entire 575-acre farm, we want to make a positive impact on this ecosystem of Sumter County and teach other farmers and other landowners how to have that same positive impact. And if we all did our part to have a positive impact on the ozone layer, as I was just mentioning, imagine what change we could make if each of us did our part um, to create a positive impact instead of a negative impact. I think we really would see some, some big changes, not just with environmental toxins, but with the weather patterns that we're seeing that are so screwed up, um, with global warming even. I mean, all of these issues that are man-made, we could, it, we could reverse. Um, and so since we are in a, a really agriculture-heavy area, that's one of the ways we can seek to be an alternative to say, well, think about this differently. Okay, so you got a problem. Let's find a solution. Well, permaculture has been really helpful for us. Those Permaculture principles have been helpful for us as we seek alternatives to um, the, the difficulties and problems we've been facing. We've, of course, used, as I said, biological uh, methods of farming. Uh, we incorporate um, biodiversity in that, too. And, and so we're working with some folks around the country who are really trying to help us figure out how to do a better job at what we're doing, too. Uh, so we're kind of using all of those things to create a farm plan that has a positive impact and that teaches others how to have a positive impact uh, with what they're doing, where they are. That's a long answer to your question. That is um, one of the big interests of a lot of our listeners is how sustainability, things that are friendly to the environment, and the role that intentional communities play on that. And last question, um, I asked this uh, from the executive director of Dancing Rabbit Eco-Village in Missouri. And it was the idea of um, 
intentional communities always being in rural areas. Do you know of any that are urban in their setting and they're actually bringing these values and these type of ideas to the greater society? Because as much as organizations like yours is involved in the greater world and making an impact, a lot of it seems like a little escapist to go out into the woods and do that type of experimental living. Uh, are you guys affiliated or involved or know of other groups who are doing something within a city limits and getting that awareness to a greater amount of people? Yeah, you know what's ironic is that as I'm thinking about our sister communities, almost all of them are in cities, big cities. Um, of course, Jubilee Partners is in Comer, Georgia, and it's r more rural. Um, Quinnonia is so rural, particularly because we were looking for agricultural land, and you're not going to find a big plot of land in downtown Atlanta. But most of the communities I can think of are in cities. You have the Open Door in Atlanta, Georgia, that lives right on Ponce de Leon in the downtown. You have Reba Place Fellowship that's in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of Chicago in a big city. We've got Church of the Servant King in Eugene, Oregon. Um, St. Francis House is um, really close to Boston, and I can't remember the exact city it's in, but it's in a, a good-sized city. Um, there's Rootba House in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, led by uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and some other really wonderful folks there. Um, and, and, I mean, there are so many others, you know, Catholic worker communities that we know of in, in some pretty big cities. Uh, so, yeah, I, in my own experience, I've witnessed exactly the opposite, that it's folks in, in cities who are more interested and involved in intentional community. But I, I think there are a fair number of both. There are folks who are seeking something more rural, um, maybe because they're escaping from, although I would say that's not the case here at Koinonia. Um, but there are those who seek to live more uh, close to a, a city, Uh, where more things are happening and and maybe even greater need involved with some of the ministries they're a part of, um, like Open Door in Atlanta, for example. They exist much like a Catholic worker community and that their ministry is with the poor and the homeless. And so they actually have homeless folks uh, living with them as a part of their community. And their main ministries include feeding them and offering Uh, showering facilities and foot care and um, clothing uh, care. I mean, all kinds of needs that we, uh, there just wouldn't be that kind of need here in America's Georgia the same way there is in Atlanta, Georgia. So th I think it takes all kinds of people, and the community movement is no different. There are communities who witness to, you know, as I've talked about the open door, there are folks who witness to um, living alongside brothers and sisters in need, Uh, and, and that way, um, and I think each each community is like a, a signal community, pointing to some way that um, we can be a, a positive agent for change in the world. And so, no one way is the best, or no one way is the worst. It takes all different kinds of folks living out their passions and talents wherever that need exists, whether it's in a big city or in a rural city, and recognize that we're working together for the common good, not competing to be the best community there is, of course. I don't think that would even... Uh, could you imagine if we were all competing to be the best community? How ironic that would be. Um, but to each just do our part and know that we're called to, to do something good in the world. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on SoundCloud.com. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.